everybody and welcome to the podcast All Things Food. I am your host, Nikki Hursthouse. I am a registered dietitian, foodie, yoga teacher and lover of food stories. I'm really excited to bring you this week's episode, so let's get started. week I'm in conversation with Dr. Julia Bone. Julia is a registered dietitian, sports and exercise nutrition registered practitioner in the UK and an advanced sports dietitian with Sports Dietitians Australia. Julia has an interest in all aspects of nutrition, health and athletic performance. She has worked with senior and developing athletes across a number of different sports including hockey, athletics, tennis, basketball, and para-badminton. Julia has some incredible experience working with both elite and everyday athletes, and this episode is definitely for those nutrition students and budding dietitians to learn that sports dietetics is a heck of a lot more involved than meal plans and protein powder. Hi, Julia. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Nikki, for having me. Really, I should say Dr. Julia Bone, actually, (laughs) and I'm super excited to have you as a guest to talk about your experience and specifically take a real deep dive into sports nutrition and what that means for the average person and how that differs to what it means for the elite athlete. But before we dive into that topic, do you want to give Tell us a little bit about your journey of where you come from and where you are now. Yeah, sure. So at the moment, I'm currently living in Belfast, but I suppose my journey started way back now in Invercargill or in Dunedin, really, where I went to undergrad. But I always had an interest in sport and science. That's always what I wanted to do when I was in high school. And even when I was 17, I went to this Genesis science camp in Auckland for two weeks. So I've always been a bit of a nerd. Um, That's awesome. (laughs) And you got to experience different lectures in different sciences. And one of them was in sports science. And I really enjoyed it. So I was like, great. This is what I want to do. But I didn't know particularly which field I wanted to go in. So I applied for health science, like everyone, at Otago University in first year. And it was actually one of my friend's. Pauline, who had heard about this new major in in this degree that was sports nutrition and exercise metabolism. And she was just so excited about it. And so I applied to get into it and I got accepted. And we were the first cohort of that degree. There were four of us and three of us lived together. Two of them were my flatmates. (laughs) And I always knew I wanted to work in high performance sport, even doing the nutrition papers and then the like PE papers, it was always the PE papers that I had more of an an interest and it just seemed to relate so well, the nutrition and the physiology and how they complemented each other. And I really feel like sometimes when you're just doing a nutrition degree, you miss out a little bit on the understanding of how those nutrients are then used, particularly for fueling the body Mm. from an exercise point of view. And because we were so small and quite new, we had really good relationships with our lecturers And they were like career advisors as well to an extent. And so I made it known that I was wanting to 
work in high performance sport and what would be the best way to go about it and they were like well you're going to come out with a nutrition degree but they were like really if you don't want to limit yourself in terms of what athletes you can work with because obviously if you're um, as a nutritionist, you can't work with athletes that have any sort of clinical conditions such as type 1 diabetes mm. or celiac disease without referring them on to a dietitian. So they said you sh- should be good to get research experience and to do dietetics. So I did a master's after my honours. <laughs> and then I was like, well, we need to do dietetics. I hadn't done all the prereqs for dietetics in New Zealand, at Otago. So I would have had to do a year of just papers to make that up but I could get in straight away in Australia so I moved to Brisbane (laughs) good for a change of scene (laughs) yeah it's just like this is the path I want to follow so this is what I have to do to get there in my mind so yeah I moved to Brisbane and studied dietetics for the University of Queensland and that was really good it was interesting because it is so clinically focused dietetics that I suppose mm. the dream never went away, but it did sort of take a bit of a backseat, especially when I was close to graduating and I was like, you need to get a clinical job off yeah. the back of it. <laughs> but I was, was definitely still interested in pursuing sports nutrition because I asked for an advanced placement with some leading sports nutritionists, a private practice in Brisbane. And I'd also joined Sports Dietitians Australia as a student member as well and started going to their state meetings even though I knew no one it was daunting like you're going into a new environment with practitioners who are more senior than you and who know each other amazing connections though and so important to get in there as a student yeah definitely the networking as well and just the opportunities that can come from it and actually the dietitians that I ended up doing my student placement with we're obviously members of Sports Dietitians Australia and attending those meetings as well. So I got to introduce myself to them before the placement had actually started yeah. and start building yeah. that relationship already, which That's is awesome. great. Yeah. Yeah. So that went really well. And then I graduated and then I couldn't find a job. Because <laughs> <laughs> everyone wants you to do clinical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And it was also at a time, I remember in Queensland, there had been a big case of what was the word like embezzlement. So this one of the former employees had embezzled like millions of dollars. And I don't know if it was a consequence of that or because it was already happening, but they also slashed a lot of funding to public health and also nutrition. So you're also competing now for jobs in a smaller market with more dietitians. Um, and dietitians that would have been, probably had more experience. So that was tough because I'd always done quite well in school and at uni and been rewarded for it. So yeah. it was definitely a bit of a, a life learning experience, but persevered and actually ended up going into private practice. Didn't really know what I was doing, if I'm honest. I think I was losing money actually doing my my private practice because I was working as a contractor and obviously all the expenses that come along with that. Mm. And they don't teach you anything about the business aspects of dietetics in in the course. So you are learning as you go. And I was literally supporting myself by working in a call centre in the evenings and weekends 
but just was so desperate to start getting some dietetic experience that I took on these private practice positions. One of the positions I did get in private practice was actually for a diabetes clinic. And that was quite good because it was a small multidisciplinary team. So it was owned by a diabetes um, nurse educator. And there was another dietitian and a psychologist and an exercise physiologist. So that was really, really good because they would do type 1 diabetes, gestational diabetes, and also type 2. And she was yeah. quite supportive of me and wanting to embrace or I suppose pursue the sports nutrition aspect of it as well. So that was really good. And that was my first experience really working with sort of psychology, particularly around like needle phobias and trying to get ways to engage in behavior change with the, mm. the patients as well. So that was really interesting. Yeah, so much to dive into with behavior change and diabetes management. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And then while I was there, I saw a PhD advertised at the Australian Institute of Sport and I already applied for there. They would do a fellowship for dietitians for pathway into sports and I couldn't get into it because I wasn't an Australian resident. So I don't know if many people are aware, but Kiwis can work and live in Australia, no issues, but we don't actually have any permanent residency or a pathway to it. So I was locked out from working there on that avenue but this PhD was open to Aussies and Kiwis so I was like right I'll throw my hat in and I was successful which is great so I ended up moving after three years in Brisbane down to Canberra to start this PhD again moving to a place where I knew no one (laughs) starting from scratch again (laughs) did you ever think that you would be Working for the Australian Institute of Sport? No. I remember (laughs) when we were in undergrad and we'd be doing our assignments, that'd be the first website we'd go to. (laughs) Sports nutrition, what information do they have? And then that's where you'd start off and then you'd do your research from there and uh, you'd always see the name, like AIS or Dr. Louise Burke or Professor Louise Burke. And I remember Mm -hmm. when I had my interview with Louise, I was so nervous was a phone interview and my voice was just trembling <laughs> the whole time but fortunately she saw past that so it was great <laughs> because there's really a very very small group of experts in the field of sports nutrition especially in Australia and New Zealand yeah I'd say definitely in New Zealand I feel like in Australia it's definitely grown the profile of what a sports dietitian does and also the process of being able to become an accredited sports dietitian within Australia as well. Mm. But, yeah, it's not a huge membership or a huge number of of practitioners working there as well. So in terms of with Australia, what the process is that you do, your dietetics degree, they like you to have at least some experience working in clinical or private practice or community even, and then you would do the Sports Dietitians Australia Sports Nutrition course, which would be four yeah. days, and it's just this intensive course on exercise physiology and then obviously a bit of fueling and metabolism on the different aspects of that you might encounter in sports nutrition, whether that might be how to increase muscle mass, decrease body weight, looking at how you'd measure resting metabolic rate and looking at 
low energy availability or reduced energy deficiency in sports syndrome, the traveling athlete, the younger athlete, the master's athlete. Jam-packed into four days. Jam-packed into four days. (laughs) Was that something that you had to do or did your PhD go so much deeper into all of those areas that is all under that banner of becoming a sports dietitian in Australia? No, so I did that course as well. So after I graduated and then once I had started working in private practice, I did the four-day course and went down. So that was held at the AIS at the time. So that was my first trip to Canberra, actually, and that was in May. And then in December, I had gotten my scholarship, so I was moving down the next year. And so my PhD was on the measurement tools for assessing energy availability and body composition in the athletes. So I remember as part of the course, you would see the facilities and you saw the DEXA scanner and the rooms that they do skin fold measurements and anthropometry and and I remember like walking through there and you know just so cool and then the next year I was leading that part of the SBA <laughs> course it was so strange and yeah I remember starting and just having the biggest case of imposter syndrome as well just being like yeah I can't believe I'm, I'm starting here and Like, I hope I don't get asked questions I don't know the answers to. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. And I guess the AIS, even when you're not into sports in Australia, the AIS is held with such high regard for anyone going into the sports dietetics field as well. Yeah, definitely. But it was really good. I don't quite know what I was getting myself into, I think, doing a PhD. I had some research experience with my master's and it was like three and a half years and you think that's so long but then when you're doing it it just absolutely flies yeah Um, a lot to do in that (laughs) yeah a lot to do and there's always a setback (laughs) I'm yet to meet one person that hasn't had some form of a setback or another with their PhD as well so it is a bit of an emotional journey yeah (laughs) as well as a career one but as being part of their it was great because it was like a team of sports dietitians and everyone was so open and friendly with their time. So if you had questions about a particular athlete who might have had, say, a particular goal they were trying to achieve or they also had a medical condition or maybe you were, thought they might have like, suspected disordered eating, eating disorder, there was always someone that you could go to to ask mm. and, and to yeah. talk to. So it was a great learning environment to be in. And I remember in my first year there, a small job came up with the ACT women's cricket team. And so I applied for it because my PhD was considered theme-based. So I wasn't embedded within a sport. So the outputs from my research were to be for the benefit of the whole of the AIS in terms of protocols for how we would assess resting metabolic rate and just further refine the protocols for using the DEXA with the athlete population. And I was aware of that so when this job came up it's like great I'll be able to start working with some athletes but then I missed out because of lack of experience so I spoke to the supervisor and I spoke to the clinical manager just to see if there were any potential opportunities with some sports available that I could start building that practical experience of actually 
delivering sports nutrition to athletes. Yeah. And fortunately for me, a role came up with Basketball Australia and their Centre of Excellence athletes. So they're 15 to 19-year-olds that they would come in from all over Australia and live at the AIS, go to high school, in a local high school in Canberra, and then also more or less train full-time as, as student athletes. So wow, that yeah. Came up, which was great. I thought it was a little bit of a stitch up because I am like 5'2", like the shortest one in our <laughs> department <laughs> working with the tallest athletes. <laughs> like you're 17-year-olds that are over two metres tall. <laughs> <laughs> but that was really good because, again, not just being able to work with the athletes but being involved in the multidisciplinary team working with coaches with practitioners from other services in terms of strength and conditioning and physio because it does all relate to each other so it is important yeah. to have good lines of communication with those other practitioners as well because there's no point in you telling an athlete maybe to I don't know they might need to be eating a bit less when they're trying to actually gain weight and you don't know that because you haven't been speaking to the, yeah. the coach or the strength and conditioning coach so that was a really good experience. And then also from there, I picked up a small role with Tennis Australia with their academy athletes as well in the ACT. And one of my colleagues actually moved back to Brisbane and he was doing a small private practice, the more your recreational kind of weekend warrior um, type of athlete there. So I picked up that as well. So I was able to build that experience while I was in Canberra, which mm. was, really, was great. And then you made your way to Belfast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So fast forward and I finished the PhD and I needed a job. <laughs> so <laughs> I was also lucky during the PhD to be able to go to some conferences in the States and in Europe. And again, just doing some of that networking, letting people know I was looking for a job. <laughs> and while I was there in Europe, I was at a meeting and someone there had mentioned the sports and exercise nutrition register for the UK and it was a voluntary register just to show that the practitioners that are on it have a, a certain level of competency to be able to deliver sports nutrition so I, I applied to get on that register as well and it's and good thing I did because then I ended up applying for a job in Belfast and I didn't actually hear from them for a while so I applied for other jobs as you do and it was nice because now after once you graduate dietetics and didn't have much experience and just constantly getting rejected to actually finally getting interviews for position was did feel yeah nice and was this uh, on reflection to myself that you have progressed in along your career pathway mm. and especially in a specialist area you know mm. yeah definitely I ended up being offered the job and in Belfast I hadn't done the UK thing you know as, as Kiwis that's what we do I just gonna sneak in for the youth mobility visa so uh, yeah why not and so what is your role in Belfast what are you doing so here? my role in Belfast is I'm a performance nutritionist I am a dietitian but that's the role I suppose that term's used more often over here in the UK so I'm employed and work for the Sports Institute for Sport Northern Ireland and the Institute provides service to a range of sports so from hockey to athletics, judo, boxing, sailing, rowing and both 
able-bodied and Paralympic too. Northern Ireland's not a massive relative to the Australian Institute, but it's been great to be able to work full-time and because it's not quite as big, again, just being able to really develop those relationships with the different practitioners from the other services as well and getting that experience with some more different sports too. So from managing more senior teams and senior athletes as well as the junior athletes and getting experience with Paralympic athletes too. Yeah, yeah. So that's definitely something I've missed from being in lockdown is just having that interaction and choral conversations. You get so much out of those, not only from your colleagues and other disciplines, but also just the athletes. Yeah, absolutely. What does an average day of being a sports dietitian really involve? I mean, we're not in lockdown. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, everyone, I think, kind of thinks that all I do is write meal plans. (laughs) I'm like, it's a, a, a small part. Of, of of what I do, so obviously we meet with the athlete and do an assessment and identify. We'll hear from them what their goals are. Do a nutrition review. Sometimes I do a food diary. Sometimes they do, just depends on time and how close maybe the competitions are. Um, identifying apps and then talk with them what changes we could make as well. And I leave it up to them. Sometimes, like, if they want a meal plan and that's something that they want and they know that they'll follow, I'll, I'll follow that because it sounds like that's what they want and they'll adhere to it. So it really varies. And then other athletes that are more senior that have had a bit more nutrition education and knowledge, you're just chatting to them and problem solving and things like that, particularly pre-COVID, like time management, if they were working, a lot of them train full-time a lot of them sort of jobs or still be at university so just coming up with, with ways that to help them plan their nutrition to support their health and, and their training though it's coming up with ideas with batch cooking or like easy to go meals that they can find from the supermarket to take with them or liquid options if you know they've got really short gaps in between training needing to be in the office or something like that as well so being really practical and the advice that you would provide yeah and then sometimes you would also do assessments as well whether that's with regards to body composition say with skin folds or measuring resting metabolic rate in the morning with the tokyo olympics coming up it's going to be very hot so we have a acclimation environmental chamber at the institute so you would do sweat rate and then fluid balance to provide that information to make sure that they're well hydrated and have a hydration plan when they could go to compete in hot environments and then athletes often travel a lot and often to different countries so there would be food safety advice and support um, if they're staying in hotels and it's a team communicating with the food service in the hotel with regards to our dietary requirements and the requirements of an athlete a lot of the times hotels would provide buffet foods sometimes it'd be quite heavy in cream and not enough carbohydrate type food so it's just making sure that information's provided to the hotels as well to working with athletes that are coming back from injury or rehabbing long-term injuries as well say like ACL injuries that type of thing and then any athletes that have been also referred to by us by the sports doctor say because I've got low iron low vitamin d or they've been identified as having reds so reduced energy deficiency and sport syndrome so that's when you're not eating enough 
food to support your body in terms of training and for health, particularly in female athletes. An obvious sign of it is losing their period. And although it is quite common, it doesn't mean it's normal. And that's been a real focus of changing people's perceptions around the female athlete and around that. Anti-doping is definitely a big one too, particularly around supplement um, and supplement use and trying to minimize risk of anti-doping rule violation. Yeah. I mean, that is a big deal for elite athletes. And then you've got your, what you said before, the weekend warriors or the recreational athletes. And I guess there can be such a variety of nutrition information for all areas, but especially when it comes to fueling for exercise and recovery and especially those who want to go build muscle and lifting weights at the gym. How are people meant to know whether the advice that they're reading or anything like that is actually good advice? Yeah, that's a great question. And you said it very diplomatically (laughs) as well. (laughs) I think there is definitely this sort of myth around what an athlete looks like or needs to look like. And I think that's also risen with social media as well. And there's, definitely a misconception that you need to be extremely lean to be a good athlete body composition is just one aspect of performance and yeah being lighter or being leaner doesn't automatically mean that your performance is going to improve yeah i think if you're looking at the advice online look at the profile of who's providing that advice do they list any qualifications and if they do can you then look them up on that register as well, whether that's Sports Citations Australia or SCNR, or at least they state where they got their qualifications from. And I find a lot of sports dietitians and nutritionists that provide education content who are excellent practitioners aren't also trying to sell you something. They're trying to Mm. educate you. And so if you're reading advice and it's saying you've got this problem, you should use this product to fix it or if you're feeling run down use a supplement then I just question the motive behind those posts and that information and from your experience and even with elite athletes how common is it that they can't actually get the nutrition they need through food first good question it's probably not as uncommon as you think most of the times you can meet it through food i think an easy one to give an example on is sort of protein like whey protein powders and protein bars are everywhere and you can easily meet your dietary requirements through eating protein through foods alone it's just sometimes with athletes sometimes yes they do have higher requirements but it's also sometimes that it's a time factor or a convenience factor as well or they're going to go and travel for a couple of hours or something and they need something convenient that they can have there and there to help start their recovery process after finishing a a training session. So in that instance, it might be a time you might use it or you could be like, all right, maybe you could bring a a cooler bag with some sandwiches in it as an alternative. And then if you've got athletes that have been diagnosed with lower iron stores because I've gone to see the doctor and it's come back in a blood test or the winter here in Northern Hemisphere. So vitamin D supplementation will probably be quite common at this time of year. In those instances then, they would need the supplement because it is actually to address a nutritional deficiency. Yeah. 
And I guess that's the difference, isn't it, when we've got your supplements that are to address nutritional deficiencies versus supplements that people take in the hope that it will enhance performance or recovery or something in some way without quite joining the dots as to whether that's actually required. Yeah, no, definitely. And when I provide education, particularly to the younger athletes, but also maybe some more senior ones, we talk about having a strong foundation and just good general healthy eating and a varied diet and a training base because the gains that you will get by getting that right are so much larger than if your nutrition and your training was poor but you were taking a supplement that was meant to improve your performance. Yeah. And in terms of use a cupcake analogy, so the actual cupcake is your good foundation and nutrition and training and then because you've got that cupcake you can't put an ice you put the icing on it you can't use icing by itself so the icing is then the sports nutrition in terms of the timing of when you'd be eating your foods in relation to when you're training or competing both before and after and I suppose looking more closely at the amounts that you're having to eat at specific times as well and your hydration plans and things like that and then the sprinkles again you can't use this well some people might say you could just eat the sprinkles but normally the sprinkles go on the icing <laughs> <laughs> and the icing goes on the cake and the sprinkles yeah. are what we call the supplements or the ergogenic aids so supplements that are taken to actually try and improve performance and that would be your creatine your caffeine bicarb capsules things like that and there actually isn't a lot out there that has a high enough level of evidence to actually support improving performance as well and again, yeah. AIS website has a nice supplement framework. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess the thing with that as well is you've got these additional supplements, but every country is developing them differently and different countries have different regulations about what can go into supplements. And I guess for the elite athlete, that's very important from the anti-doping perspective that everything's tailored to them individually and it's all reviewed to make sure it's safe. But I guess for the the everyday athlete, you can walk into a a shop that is called a Mm -hmm. nutrition shop but only sells supplements and buy anything off the shelf and not actually know whether it's from a country that's got a good regulation around what they put in supplements or whether it's actually something that's safe for you personally, which can be a risk. Supplements don't always do good things as well, especially to our our body and our kidneys. Uh, and there have definitely been studies. They've taken like batches of supplements that they've bought in store or online and then tested them to see if they actually contain what's on the label or if they've been contaminated with prohibited substances. And it was something like 15% of the ones in one particular study were contaminated and would have shown up for an elite athlete like to have taken a prohibited yeah. substance. Yeah. It is a huge risk, and I suppose if you're not an elite athlete and you're not really concerned about an anti-doping practice, that's still the case, and it could still contain something that may be harmful to you. Yeah, and also the case that you're paying for X amount of protein or creatine or certain amino acids, but the supplement might not even contain that amount (laughs) that it says on the label. So that's where it's just using the money wisely, not flushing it down the toilet. Exactly. And some of them might even be causing you gut distress as well, particularly the protein bars that are low carb. They use sweeteners, particularly sugar alcohols, and that could be if you've got like bloating or 
lower GI issues, cramps, diarrhea. Some people might think it might be the dairy or it might be the gluten, but it could actually be these protein bars that you're having yeah. a laxative effect <laughs> as well. Yeah, and even in that case, for the everyday athlete, you could argue that getting a, an individual plan, if you're really serious about your own exercise or your own sport that you do on the weekend, is really the best way to siphon through some of that information that's out there and make sure that you're actually doing the best for your body and you've got a plan that is actually positive for your sport as well. Yeah, definitely. And I suppose it just gives you more knowledge and confidence on what other foods that you can have that provide Mm. the nutrition that you would need in that time. Yeah. So whether, say, you're an endurance athlete, maybe goals to want to run a half marathon or a marathon and just getting information on just how much you need to eat, fuel that training that you're doing and giving you suggestions or maybe how to fuel during those sessions. There are definitely times where, again, that might be when you might use some supplements, say, such as gels because they can be transportable. You can take them with your running and you don't need to really chew them and, and things like that. But then also you might just make up some sandwiches with some jam roll them up cut them up really short and just use those as some yeah. alternatives and that's I think the value of a sports dietitian is coming up with food and suggestions that what's going to work best for you and within your budget as well because supplements are expensive too yeah and also making sure that you trial these things because what you said the the gut can react in different ways to new ingredients and new foods and especially when you're exercising that disrupts the gut as well not necessarily always in a bad way but it can just cause bowel changes and and then if you haven't trialed any of your food for during training or for recovery you can get a few surprises no definitely you were saying trial and training first and if you can try and run a smaller race or another competition that maybe doesn't matter if so much if you don't perform in it because there are differences psychologically when you are actually going to compete compared to when you're training just with even with nerves and people's appetite can start to go and the effect that could have on the rest of their digestive system so if you can also trial it in a less important event that's great too and then once you've confident with that then I'd say it's fine to trial for yeah. the, that your goal event or goal race or that you're aiming for. Yeah. Are there particular sports that you work with at the moment? Yeah, so one sport I've worked with since I started in Belfast is actually hurling as well, which yeah. is a Gaelic sport. Yeah, really cool sport. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> High level of skill and also physicality as yeah. well. So that's been quite cool, just learning a new sport and the new rules and everything as well. And then I would also work with athletics, track athletes and hockey with men and women's program as well. And also uh, para badminton. So those are the, the main sports I'm working with at the yeah. moment. And what is the year looking like in the lead up to Tokyo Olympics? Yeah, the year is busy. So some athletes are still trying to qualify. So looking like in, it's a bit uncertain if those qualification competitions are going to be going ahead 
or not. So that's the challenge in terms of trying yeah. to keep them motivated and on track when they don't necessarily have something to train for. Other athletes have applied, so they're in preparation and trying to start their sort of heat acclimation strategies and hydration strategies um, as well and planning for those too. And other athletes will still be in that some of them that involves travel as well so providing sort of the nutrition support when they're traveling just making sure that they're taking care of themselves from a food hygiene point of view and if they're traveling to another country taking their own foods that they like to eat and they like to have as well yeah so it's a lot of support for those athletes in preparation and then we've also got com games next year too so qualifications for, for a lot of sports such as netball and then again there'll be athletics and as well probably in the second half of the year in preparation for the Commonwealth Games. Yeah, despite all the disruptions and despite lockdowns, there's still a lot of exciting things on the horizon, which is cool. From your experience and also from your perspective, what would be three take-home messages on sports nutrition? Yeah, so I suppose... Two of them kind of roll into each other. So one of them is do the basics. So get that good foundation. Just make sure that are you having enough fruit and veg during the day? Do you eat the same thing every day for every, your dinners or do you vary it up and get some variety in your meals? And that sort of translates into your health is your wealth. I think for any athlete, whether you're elite or recreational, if you're prone to injury or always getting illnesses, colds or gut upsets, you're not going to be able to train. Yeah. Um, at all, let alone train with quality to improve your performance. So making sure that you're taking care of your health is important. And then finally, I suppose, food first. <laughs> you can meet the most of your requirements through foods. And I would just really say that if you are feeling really tired or you think you might have an iron deficiency, get a blood test from your GP because if you do have a deficiency, just taking any supplement off the shelf from the, the chemist, it might not actually be enough to bring your levels back up or you could be actually fine. It could be related to maybe you haven't been sleeping well because of stress and you might then be getting too much iron. Yeah, yeah. And thinking about the world of sports dietitians, or as you said, it's more commonly known as sports nutrition or sports nutritionists. How sort of big is that world in New Zealand? It's not that big bear in mind i haven't lived in new zealand for like 10 <laughs> years now so i suppose the first ports of call i would do is sports dietitian australia actually have a search function and you can select new zealand on that the next one i would go to would be the new zealand dietitians board and search for your location if any of the dietitians on there would offer sports nutrition yeah. i suppose then thirdly i just google it sports nutrition new zealand and again, they should have a website and they should list their qualifications on that. So just double check yeah. qualifications on there to make sure that they're yeah. So it's looking for an extra qualification specifically in sports nutrition Yeah. on top of being a registered dietitian. Already. Yeah, or, or a registered nutritionist. Yeah. That's awesome. Thanks so much for chatting today. I've learned heaps and it's awesome to hear how your journey has progressed over the years to a point where you are doing what you've always wanted to do and you do what you love, which is great. And that really comes across. And 
with two huge sporting events coming up mm-hmm. over the next year-ish, that's just so exciting for you as well to have these things and these opportunities to look forward to. Yeah, so it's been nice to relive the journey a little bit. <laughs> and yeah, sometimes I can't believe I'm I'm actually doing my job and the yeah. fact that I'm here and actually reached the goal that I wanted to. But even with that, you're still always learning. I think in sports yeah. nutrition, new research comes Constantly out. Constantly changing and evolving. Yeah, 100%. So that keeps it exciting. And we'll just see what the future brings and with the upcoming major games as well and then the yeah. other individual sports have their own major championships too so definitely keeps me busy but yeah we'll see you if it leads me back to New Zealand one day yeah I was about to say that I was like maybe you'll be back maybe you'll be back on New Zealand and um bringing all of that expertise and experience back at some point yeah <laughs> we'll have to find the right opportunity for you yeah definitely <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe so you can find out when new episodes are released throughout the season. If you loved this episode, please consider leaving a review and share it with your friends, family, or anyone who you think might also enjoy tuning in. Until next week, you can follow the podcast and my work over on Instagram and Facebook at Nourish with Nikki. And to find out more about working with me, visit NikkiHurstHouse.com. See you again next week.